think back, oh, man, that wasn't really that cool, was it? Um, back in the late or mid-90s, uh, <clears throat> Mary Carr wrote a memoir about growing up in uh, southeast Texas in the 1960s. Uh, it was called The Liars Club. It stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for uh, over a year. And uh, it's a fascinating story of, of some very unusual people, uh, even dysfunctional people. In fact, she tells about her father's uncle, who back during the Depression years had such a, a fierce quarrel with his wife about how much money she was spending on sugar that um, he took a saw out and literally cut their house in half. I guess it was a small house. Cut it in half, um, patched over the inside halves, drug her half around behind a group of trees on his property, and for the next 40 years she lived there and he lived here. I guess that's an alternative to divorce, but it seems to me like that's a pretty strong reaction to not things not going uh, your way. I want to show you a clip of a movie. How many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Pixar's flick, Inside Out. Great, great movie. Uh, it, it's probably more for adults than for children. Uh, it's got a clever uh, premise. It's a short storyline. Uh, Mom and Dad and uh, 11-year-old Riley move from Minnesota to San Francisco for Dad to take a new job. Uh, but the real plot is the in, inner thoughts and emotions of all three, but especially focused on Riley. She's not real happy with, with the move to San Francisco. Things don't go well. And, and the clip you're about to see is getting behind Riley's as well as her mom and dad's mind and, and, and seeing the different emotions and, and how they're um, affecting their reactions. There's five emotions. Um, Joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and my personal favorite, anger. Take a look. Keep it subtle so she doesn't notice. So, how was the first day of school? She's probing us. I'm done. You pretend to be Joy. What? Okay. Um, hmm. It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Oh, very smooth. That was just like Joy. Something is definitely going on. She's never acted like this before. What should we do? We're going to find out what's happening but we'll need support. Signal the husband. Ahem. With a nice pass over the reef, comes across that right. Uh-oh, she's looking at us. Uh, what did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? <sighs> He's making that stupid face again. I could strangle him right now. Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Oh, you be kidding me. For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? Boo, I'll be joy. School was great, all right? Riley, is everything okay? <sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. What is her deal? All right, make a show of force. I don't want to have to put the foot down. No, not the foot. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude, okay? No, 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 stay happy! What is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. You heard that, gentlemen? DEFCON 2. Listen, young lady, I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Come and get it! Yeah, well, 
Here it comes. Prepare the foot. Keys to safety to position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. Just shut up! Fire! That's it. Go to your room. Now. Foot is down. The foot is down. Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a disaster. Well, that was a disaster. <laughs> we should just watch the rest of the movie. In case you didn't figure out, the little red guy was anger. <laughs> He's my favorite. He said, like a match uh, ready to go off like a volcano. He, but he's a lot of, lot of fun. Watch the whole movie. See how effective he can be in our lives. Right? I want to talk this morning, especially uh, to those of us that kind of uh, maybe made peace with anger. Um, all of us struggle with anger. We, we talked before, there's a, there's a good place, there's a, a righteous place for anger. Um, it's, good, it's a good thing to be angry about all the little babies that are aborted around the world. It's a good thing to be angry at, at, at ISIS. It's, it's a good thing to be angry at an African uh, dictator who robs his people blind and lives uh, high on the hog himself. It's a good thing to be angry at a man who makes a pass at your wife. Those are good things. But if we think about our lives and what it is that stirs up anger in us, I, my guess is that Many of the things that do that aren't all that noble. So let me ask you this morning, just think about it. What, did it. what is it that angers you? What is it that angers you? And you think about um, like a teenager that doesn't come home. 10 o'clock's a curfew. She strolls in at 1130 at night. And you are upset. On the one hand, you have a right to be upset. You had expectations that were not filled. But think about what often is going on behind the scenes that prompts you to get angry. And this is kind of my, one of my points this morning is there's a mathematical issue at stake that maybe we don't even realize when the anger surfaces. Here's what I mean. So daughter comes strolling in an hour and a half late and you don't think about this, but I wonder how much of this is in play. Can't believe it. I put food on her table. I put a roof over her head. I pay for her health insurance if she needs to go to the doctor. I write the checks. I give her a car to drive around. I pay for the, the, for the insurance for the car. I do all this for her. You would think the least she could do is come home in time. Can I get an amen from a dad? Wives, your husband forgets your anniversary. And you are miffed at him, and you, he pays the price for that. And maybe it doesn't, maybe doesn't process through your mind like this, but really you think, okay, every day I pack his lunch for work. There's a hot meal on the table when he comes home from work. He has clean clothes in his drawer all the time. I clean the house, I diaper his kids, I, I, I make love to him, I don't count his sins against him. You would think out of 365 days of the year, he could at least remember 
this one day. Math coming into play. Do, do you see what I'm saying? That, that things can get stirred up in our souls because we feel like there's, in lieu of what I've done for this person, they should not respond to me this way. You help others. You have a servant's heart. They don't seem to help you. Or your friends, you invite them to your place or you get together, you initiate things with them, but they don't ever seem to return the favor. And it's like, I do all this. Why is it there's some payback? Why is it there's some recompense? You go to school some morning and a girl who was your kind of your best friend for the last three years looks at you, looks away, and converses with other people. And the next day, it's still the same. And you're like, this is not a coincidence. I can't believe it. All the times I've listened to her on the phone, complain about her. A boyfriend treats her. I've prayed with her. Yada, 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 yada. And now this. I'm opposed. I'm rejected. I'm marginalized. I'm ignored. I don't deserve this because of all this and anger says i will never forget what you said i will never forget what you did why because i've been shortchanged here's what i want you to remember this morning if you remember nothing else is that anger forgets grace anger forget forgets grace and we're going to read a story here after we pray that Jesus told that I think will help drive home the point. Let's pray together and ask God for his help. Father, we worship you as the maker of heaven and earth, one who has made everything that we enjoy, the one who has made us, the one who has given us a place to live, as Paul talks about Acts 17, the one who has rescued us from ourselves, has offered us hope in Christ. The one who has created life in such a way that we can enjoy things like vacations, intimate relationships with family members, a kind of bond that is unique to those who are blood you have you have blessed us with sunshine and when the ground gets dry and the flowers shrivel up rain and we complain about both too much sun too much rain and you do not treat us as you treated the complaining Israelites and for that we're grateful you give us help you give us strength you give us life for all this, we give you praise this morning. You have fashioned us and made us in such a way. Some of us are very placid and peaceful, and perhaps even a message on anger doesn't really seem to hit us. And yet, if we're honest, there are moments where there's a lot of stuff roiling around inside that never gets out. And whether, even if the, the yelling doesn't occur, and even if the cursing doesn't occur, even the finger pointing doesn't occur, inside we take people to task, punish them for their faults. 
for their violations of us, perhaps seething with resentment and bitterness. I don't know where anybody else is this morning, but I know I need to hear from you. And so I pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning. Power, candor, that you would dismantle barriers to his conversation with us. Would you bind the enemy, keep him from affecting us in any way. Lord, I pray that this would be a morning in which you would be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 18, beginning verse 23. So the backdrop backdrop here is uh, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him, how many times should I forgive someone? Now, it may be that Peter had somebody uh, in mind in his sphere that had uh, offended him, sinned against him uh, again and again and again, or maybe somebody had come out of the crowd and talked to him and said, what's your master have to say about this? Now, Peter asked the question, so how many times should we forgive somebody that sins against us? And then he gave his own suggestion, seven times? Peter thought he was being generous. The rabbis said three times would be good. And Jesus turns around and doesn't agree with Peter. He says, seven? How about seven times 70? 490. Now, who's going to keep track of that many times of forgiveness? Obviously, Jesus' point was, don't stop forgiving. And then I'm sure he was certain this was not going to be well received by Peter, let alone anyone else. And so he tells a story to drive his point home. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Aren't you glad banks don't work like that today? Now, this would not have brought in millions of dollars. It would not have paid the debt, but at least would have made a little dent in it. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please, be patient with me. I will pay it all. And then his master was filled with pity for him. And if Jesus would have put a period at this point, you would expect him to say, and he gave him more time. But no. He says the master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Just like that, wiped clean. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, and he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. The wording is identical to the other man's words to the king. Be patient with me, and I will pay for it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Every time I read this story, I scratch my head because I don't understand how you can make the money necessary to pay off your debt when you're in prison. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king, and they told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man who had forgive, he had forgiven, and he said, You evil servant, 
I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And then at the last verse, we find out who the king really is in the story. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. You see, when we get angry with someone, we're holding the price they owe us over their head. We're requiring them to do something to correct something. Now, there's a price to peace. And if you get angry with your teenage daughter, what's the price for peace? She's going to repent. She's going to ask your forgiveness. She's going to promise never to do it again, on and on and on. If your husband, um, if there's going to be peace with, between the two of you over the fact that he didn't remember uh, your anniversary date again, um, he's going to make up uh, in big time with a nice dinner date, with uh, flowers, with a really nice gift. But more importantly, he's going to get out a smartphone and he's going to put it in for next year. And maybe even put it in five days leading up to the date so that he doesn't forget it. By the way, that's a really good way to remember things. There's a price to be paid for peace. So you have two key players in the story, the king and the servant. Both of them are owed money. That's a legitimate obligation that each person has to the person that lend them the money. So the price for peace is you're going to pay the debt to me. You're going to pay back what you owe to me. And so the king says, well, you can't pay that, so I'm going to sell your family, and I'm going to sell all your stuff, and I'll get a little bit of money anyway, and then there will be peace. Or he can pay it off himself. That's what he did. I forgive you of the debt. The millions of dollars that I loaned you, gone. I took it upon myself. That's the, that's the price of peace for him. And so the servant goes out. He's, been, he's had this massive debt cleared. And now he goes and grabs another servant by the throat and tells him to pay this measly debt of several thousand dollars. I mean, as you read this, don't, don't you get indignant at how this guy could do this? I mean, the king forgave a million, millions of dollars worth of debt for him, and now he's going after several thousand. Pay me what I owe. Just give me a little bit more time, and, and, and I'll pay you back. You have to think about the man who was forgiven already. What did he think when he told the king, give me a little bit more time, and I'll pay you back millions of dollars, which apparently he hadn't paid a single penny on yet? I don't know, maybe he had borrowed the money for a business, and the first couple of years were all R&D costs, and maybe now the, they're going to have a year where they're actually going to sell some product, and maybe he can make some money and pay some of it. I don't know, but you would think that there would be some sort of gratitude in what has happened to him that would be passed along, but no. Throws a man in prison until he pays every cent. The price of peace, he tells his servant friend, is you pay me everything. In one case, the price of peace is the person who loaned the money pays for it himself. The other, no, you're going to pay me back. And there won't be peace until that happens. Again, I say, 
anger seems to forget grace. The servant forgot the size of the debt that he owed the king. He forgot the size of the forgiveness that was extended to him. And Jesus says, if this is how you treat others, this is how your father would treat you. One of the common complaints of people who are not uh, people of faith uh, have is that the God, uh, the Christian God, seems to be angry. He seems to be judgmental, and it's a fair it's a fair accusation. You go to the Old Testament; there's 13 words that speak about God's anger and His wrath, and they're used 499 times. Some people think that God kind of was rehabilitated by the time Jesus comes on the scene. But make no mistake about it, God's wrath continues in some measures. Go to Acts chapter 5, and you remember Ananias and Sapphira come in, and they lie to Peter, and what happened? Go to the book of Revelation, speaks about what God has ahead for for the rebels here on earth who've not turned to him, and the wrath is not pretty. God is angry with those he has created. Why is he angry? Because he created a perfect man, and then he created a perfect woman. He put them in a perfect garden. He gave them a perfect set of circumstances, and they rebelled against him. They blew it. And not only was that true of Adam and Eve, but everyone who's come after them. I mean, all of us. And yet the Bible says that God is uh, 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 compassionate. He is slow to anger he is abounding in love and somebody might look at God's anger and say well if God gets angry why can't I be angry because you're not holy and the person you get angry with is unholy just like you're unholy on the other hand God's holy and he gets angry with unholy people he is the perfect the most perfect being in the entire universe god has never had a sinful thought he has never um, considered something that was unrighteous to do he he has never done something unrighteous and yet he is dealing with a planet full of seven and a half billion people who are every inclination is towards sinfulness apart from the grace of god And so when God is angry at a human being who rebels against him, it is a righteous and just anger. But when I get angry at you because you failed to make my day, I'm as unholy as you are. How dare I be angry? How dare I be so arrogant? You see, anger forgets the grace of God extended to us the prince of peace came into the world to bring peace between you and god but also to bring peace between you and your wife between you and your children between you and your friend or former friend or even your enemy 700 years before jesus was born the prophet isaiah predicted that a messiah would come his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace And when the angels serenaded the shepherds on that night when Jesus was born, there outside of Bethlehem, they sang, And peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
God sent his own son to pay the price to make peace between him and you. We were at war with God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are by nature objects of God's wrath, that we were enemies of God. That was our nature. And God looked down on our plight and he says, I'll take care of that. I'm going to bring peace between the two of us and I'll take the expense on my shoulders entirely. This is what it says in Romans chapter chapter 5 verse 1. Drop in in the middle of that verse. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Just let that simmer in your souls a bit. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Not because of what we have done or because of certain things that we stopped doing. We have peace with God solely because of what Christ has done for us. God achieved victory in the war through his own sacrifice. And you know when... When there is a war and um, the, there, there's a treaty signed that brings an end to the war, the victor always imposes harsh demands on the loser. One of the reasons that World War II happened was because the Allies were so harsh with the losers after World War I. And Adolf Hitler played into that frustration and that anger in Germany and turned it into a horrific mess for all of Europe and much of the world. About 150 years ago, our federal government assembled the main Plains tribes, uh, Indian tribes, uh, in Kansas for what became known as the Medicine Lodge Treaty. It's two years after the Civil War. And they sat down with the chiefs of the Arapaho and the Cheyenne, the Kiowa and the Apache and I forget what other one it was, Kiowa. And they say, we want to have a treaty with you. And there had been a lot of battles between uh, white settlers and the Plains Indians as there was westward expansion. And essentially, U.S. cavalry won. And so they sat down, and they dictated terms. And they cheated the Indians out of much of their land. They literally stole um, several... Uh, tens of thousands of square miles from the Indians that they had just two years before established a treaty to protect. This treaty was supposed to be ratified by 75% of the Indian males. It never was. And it forced all the Indians onto reservations, forced them to end hunting and to take up farming. It was a horrific, ugly deal. But that's what happens when there's a war and somebody loses except the war that you and I had with God. When God won the victory, instead of making us pay all the penalty, he paid it all himself. And he poured out blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon we the losers. And so now we, we, we have a title of a saint. We're seen in God's eyes as perfect, even though we're not. We're seen not as rebels anymore, but as sons and daughters of the living God. Peace has been made between us and heaven. We have an inheritance, an eternal inheritance with God. No war has ever been fought and concluded on this kind of, these kind of terms. 
you know, you and I have failed God miserably in and on our own. And yet his prince brought us peace. And I wonder this morning, do you think about the times that you um, lose it when you express your anger? Whether it's just somebody in your, your family, maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's not expressed, but you just simmer inside. Have you considered the mathematics of God's grace in that equation? Are you and I like this servant who was forgiven so much and we kind of blithely go on our way and just let somebody else have it, forgetting the grace that has been poured into us, that we might not be bottles of God's grace but channels of God's grace, that his grace would flow into us and then out to other people's lives. I wonder if there's somebody here this morning that would say, there's, I need to go and talk to somebody. I need to make a phone call this afternoon. I, I, I need to sit down with somebody and ask their forgiveness. Or maybe I just need to get alone with God and ask his forgiveness for the bitterness and resentment in my heart against this person, that person, this institution. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells a, an amazing story about, excuse me, about a, a woman named Rebecca who was part of a discussion group that he was in where they were talking about the problems of forgiveness. Rebecca was a quiet woman, didn't really say much until the night they started talking about divorce. And then she shared her story. She was married to a pastor who was a very well-known speaker and often tapped for conferences or retreats. But he had a dark side that most people didn't know about. Rebecca did. He dabbled in pornography. And when he was out of town, sometimes he would solicit prostitutes. Sometimes he would ask his wife's forgiveness. Sometimes he wouldn't. And occasionally he had a girlfriend on the side. Eventually... <clears throat> Before this became known publicly, the pastor resigned his church, left Rebecca, and moved in with his latest girlfriend, Julianne. It was not a nice time for Rebecca. Uh, she couldn't wash her hands of this man because they had two children and they had to still be in contact regarding arrangements for visitation and so forth. Some of her friends at church pulled away from her, blaming her for her husband's stra sexual straying. Um, try to put yourself in her shoes. She was an angry, angry woman. Several years went by, and she began to realize that if she didn't do something, she was going to be devoured by bitterness. And she began to pray <clears throat> that God would soften her heart. And her prayers for many, many months were simply vindictive ones, vengeful. You know how you pray when somebody has really hurt you. You think of some amazing things that Hollywood wouldn't even put in a movie to do to them. And she had those kind of prayers. 
But eventually God began to soften her heart. Until she became convinced that she needed to call her ex-husband. And so the night came, she picked up the phone, her hand trembling, and she called him. And she said, "I, I just want you to know that I forgive you for what you did. And I forgive Julianne as well. He laughed, mocked her, said there was nothing he needed to be forgiven of, hung up. About three years later, Rebecca got a phone call one night, and it was Julianne. She was in tears. They had been uh, in Minnesota somewhere for a conference, and that one evening at the motel, he went out for a walk. About three hours later, she got a phone, Julianne got a phone call from the police. He had been picked up for soliciting a prostitute. And Julianne said to Rebecca, I I thought that even if what you said was true, that he was a changed man, and surely we'd have a good relationship. She said, when this all broke, I thought, who could could I turn to? Who would understand? I I have nobody. And then I remembered the night that you called and said that you forgave us. I know this is a terrible thing to ask. But can I come over and talk to you? And Rebecca said, sure. And so she came to her house. And they sat and held hands and cried together, shared stories of betrayal. And Julianne points to that night as the night that she became a follower of Jesus. You and I will never know the damage that is left in our hearts and other hearts if we let anger rule the day. Well, more importantly, we'll never taste the fullness of God's grace unless we're willing to pass it along. Because whatever you've done to me is tiny compared to what I've done to him. And yet with one clean sweep of his son's blood, he forgave me of it all. Can't we forgive each other of the small things? Let's pray. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making a way for rebels like me. It wasn't just a small feat. It was an all-in, full-on self-sacrificing feat when you gave Jesus for us. We're grateful. No doubt, Lord, you want to speak to some of us about the way we live life with other people I pray that as you speak you would not discourage but encourage you would not dismantle but build up that we might see that 
you give us all the raw material necessary to restore relationships with those that we tend to lash out at. And that just as you made peace with us, that your wrath, your anger was satisfied, we can, using that same raw material, can make peace with others. After all, that's what the prince came to do. Amen.